Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party podcast. This one featuring Liberal Democrat uh, Majid Nawaz, who's a parliamentary candidate at the next election. Really timely talking to Majid um, when I did. This, uh, if you're not familiar with Majid's background, he was a member of Hizbut Tahrir, the radical Islamist movement, uh, ended up in an Egyptian jail shortly after 9-11, came back, has turned his life around, um, set up the Quilliam Foundation, which fights radicalism inside and outside of Islam, and was instrumental in Tommy Robinson leaving the EDL and hopefully uh, being fully rehabilitated in the next few years. Uh, this was around the time when we met um, that ISIS were making inroads into Iraq, that the alleged Trojan horse campaign was happening in some of Birmingham schools. So very timely to be having a debate and a discussion around radicalisation, how to stop it, the sorts of people that get involved, how you can conquer it globally. Majid was on sparkling form uh, all evening as well. What the podcast doesn't do justice to is just how dapper he is as well. So Google image search him while you're listening to this. He's a very good looking and well turned out man. Uh, I should uh, at the start apologise for the late delivery of this. Um, I've been horrendously busy lately. Um, So sorry. Um, but I didn't want to just put it out there and you think, well, it's been a while since the last one, so apologies for that. Uh, getting ready for Edinburgh, obviously. Uh, tickets are on sale at edfringe.com. I'm up there for the whole month with my new show, 24-Hour Political Party People. So hopefully see you up there. But enjoy this one. It's a great discussion. And Majid was someone that I'd been just keen to meet anyway, let alone interview about politics. And he, even if he doesn't get elected at the next election, is a, uh, a force for good and a very impressive man. So Enjoy. <laughs> Hello, good evening. Hello, welcome, welcome. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. hello. So this, I guess, is a European election special, and uh, judging on the turnout, it looks as if though everyone who voted in the Euro elections has turned up tonight. So, uh, congratulations. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, give me a cheer if this is your first time. Quite a few people. Excellent. Well, welcome, newcomers, uh, to the show. Uh, did everyone watch the election results coming in on Sunday night? <laughs> okay, about five people did. Uh, at what is, it should be the most political gig in town. Only five people are actually that bothered about it. I think 95 people have turned up tonight thinking it's an actual party. Uh, <laughs> there will not be nibbles unless you pay for it. Uh, the footage this year, because now they do the count after the results. So before it used to be immediately you got the results coming in on the night. Now you have to wait till Sunday when you've sort of forgotten about it all. David Dimbleby is definitely losing it. <laughs> He can't read an autocue anymore. There were bits where he didn't know what Twitter was. He didn't know whether he was on air. Uh, hello and welcome to Vote 2014. Uh, coming up in the second half of the show, I'm having an affair with my lesbian sister. She was downstairs. Hang on, I think I'm reading the wrong autocue here. I think it's the autocue for Jeremy Kyle. Uh, he, uh, the main problem you've got now, of course, is all this dead air where you just need pundits and pundits and pundits to fill it. And you get politicised pundits who don't want to admit 
we're getting screwed here. <laughs> so they send pundits out who can just sort of hold a line. Uh, and you get the sort of translation of it. So the first pundit will be the Labour pundit uh, saying, look, um, I think what this shows, actually, David, is uh, on the projected figures, uh, is that Ed's message is, is really getting through. Uh, and what that means is, I can't believe we're finishing second. I thought we were going to finish sixth. <laughs> you get the Tory line saying, well, look, look, David, forgive me, but, you know, these are Euro elections. Governments at this stage in the Parliament always struggle, OK? And that translates as, I didn't know we were going to struggle this much. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and then you get the Lib Dem line, which is, well, look, um, look, um, well, look, David, you know, just, just forgive me, but look, I think it's pretty clear. Um, look, the voters, let's, let's make no bones about it. Uh, the Lib Dems have sent us, the voters have sent the Lib Dems a pretty clear message tonight, uh, which the translation is, Nick Clegg needs to die. <laughs> and die quick. Nick Robinson's punditry, oh my word. That guy is the king now of predicting nothing while predicting everything. And don't be surprised, David, if Ed Miliband actually does quite well tonight. Uh, unless, that is, no one votes for him. <laughs> Hang on. That is not punditry. By the next election, they're going to be going, Nick, uh, how do you think Labour are going to do in the North tonight? I'm getting the letter J. Incredible. But UKIP, the undoubted, undisputed winners uh, of the uh, campaign. Did anyone here vote for UKIP? <laughs> Two people and one deflating dinghy. Uh, <laughs> um, they, to be fair, ran a campaign that was almost willed people not to vote for it. It was the most daring campaign I've ever seen. They started off with these posters that actively insulted people. Um, the first one, of course, was the one that had the big hand pointing out of it. It said 26 million people in Europe are out of work. Guess whose job they're after? There must have been some people who walked past that poster and went, surely not. <laughs> I work for Ed Miliband. <laughs> can't give this job away. If some European wants it, they're welcome to it. I can't get out. I hope David Moyers walked past that poster the day after he lost the United job and went, fucking tell me about it. You had them insulting all sorts. You had Farage, who I have to say I'm a big fan of, and we've had down here, and he's you know, a big personality. Um, it emerged um, that uh, despite these messages on Europeans taking our jobs, he was employing his wife to be a secretary, uh, who's also German. Uh, and Nick Robinson says to him, don't you think, Nigel, it's a bit hypocritical to be employing a German lady when you're saying that British people's jobs are at risk? Uh, and he says, no, no, look, if you could find someone, frankly who could check my emails at midnight and brief me in the morning, and frankly, I would employ them. <laughs> and Nick Robinson's saying, are you telling me no British person could do that job? And Farage goes, what, marry me? <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying, mate. That wasn't his argument. Look, you find me someone who'll wank me off after five pints of bombardier, and frankly, I'll employ them. <laughs> no, mate. Wrong end of the stick, Nigel. Sounds like you've got your dog on the payroll as well, mate. You taking the best. Well, you show me a British boy that'll run into a piece of woodland, pick out the exact same stick that I threw in there. Maybe I'll consider having him as my child. Uh, they also uh, insulted the uh, comedy legend, Lenny Henry, uh, the black uh, comedian from Britain. All he said was, he'd like to see a few more black faces in the arts. Uh, and a UKIP candidate said, well, maybe you should go to a black country. Now, that is an incredible thing to say during an election campaign. I think, f for me, it was the one thing that really was too far. In fact, I don't know how these people sleep at night. 
Uh, not as well as Lenny Henry. <laughs> if, the, uh, <laughs> if the adverts are to be believed. They had what, what I thought was quite a bold... I should have pulled this out before the gig. Uh, they had quite a bold move at one point during the election campaign, which was to put an advert in a national paper saying, we're not racist. If any organisation would have taken out an advert... In a, imagine if Morrisons did that. <laughs> we're Morrisons. By the way, we're not a racist supermarket. <laughs> what would your first thought be? Would you go, oh, I need to get my... <laughs> racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your first thought wouldn't be, I bet they're not racist. You say, well, why is this, why is this debate happening? Have they only started selling white... I'm really struggling with this lid. <laughs> oh. Hey. If that's the only round of applause I get tonight, I'd be gutted. <laughs> what was the gig like? Yeah, it was all right, but, oh, God, these bottle-opening skills. Wow. Of course, the danger is, with the success of UKIP, is that other parties think, well, here we go, actually. We should copy this. And Blair's been out today and yesterday, talking absolute sense, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> There's about five people on my side at this point. Uh, he said, well, look, um, the last thing that, that Ed Miliband needs to be doing, frankly, is tacking right and trying to sort of outflank, uh, you know, UKIP on, on immigration. But my fear is that Ed Miliband will think, you know what, Nigel Farage is this sort of man of the people guy, he's doing quite well. Hey, I might have a bit of that. I reckon Ed Miliband will probably turn up on Top Gear next week. <laughs> and now for our star in a reasonably priced car, it's Ed Miliband. <laughs> Ed, how did you find the course? Uh, well, look, uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, look, I found the course really difficult. But you, know, but you know what the course taught me? Is that driving is hard, but it's not as hard as the cost of living crisis. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever, like, that Clarkson voice. I love that Clarkson voice. He should do the election. He should have, he should have been doing the Euro election night. And so the race was on to Strasbourg. <laughs> Labour started off badly in what looked like a new car, but once you looked under the bonnet, it was a rusty old banger with shades of brown. <laughs> the Tories didn't even get out of first gear, which excited George Osborne as the first gear he did was still illegal. <laughs> and the Lib Dems were beaten into fourth place by the Satanist movement, or as we call them, the Green Party. UKIP, of course, topped the poll. They drank, drove all the way to Strasbourg, smoked in the car and daubed the car with We Hate Gays. <laughs> and they still won the race. The only race, actually, they actually like. <laughs> that was votes. No one ever... No one ever I'm not saying that all right-wing people sound like that, but no one who sounds like that is ever left-wing. <laughs> it's always... It's always a right-wing talk. You know, that sort of late-night talk sport. Um, <laughs> Clarkson... You know, you, know, that's all, you know the sort of voice, I mean, you know, the people who sort of rant and rave like that and never left work, it's always, you know what, frankly, the government haven't got a clue. The police are too busy filling in forms. Don't get me started on the balmy Brussels bureaucrats. Frankly, this country has ceded too much power to a load of pillocks on the continent, right? <laughs> They're never left wing. You never hear them saying, you know what, if two men want to consummate a loving relationship, all the best to them, particularly if they're Romanian. <laughs> Sadly, never happens. Yeah, good old Blair. He, uh, total sense, old Tony. You know, but this is the problem he's got, is that it's not the... Ma- you, you listen to what he says, and most people go, well, that's a fair point. 
But because it's Tony Blair, people really want to disagree with him. He said, look, UKIP, frankly, has some nasty elements to it, and you're not going to compete with UKIP. You know, Labour isn't going to get more votes at the next election by sort of promising a, a sort of European uh, you know, referendum. And people say, oh, God, oh, Blair, sticking his warmongering nose into business again. You know, mate, you can't actually disagree with anything. So Tony Blair could say literally anything, and people would just disagree with it. Well, look, I think, frankly, if you're going to have a barbecue, I think you're better off waiting for warm weather. Um, I think the way I see it these days, and I think the sort of tone has changed on this, is that, you know, if you light it in the wet, frankly, it's not going to get started. We go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, what are you saying, Tony, that people in rainy countries shouldn't be able to eat meat? You bastard. Are you sure you got a barbecue, or did you just invent it? What are you going to do, bomb your neighbours, Tony? We're really quite sorry for him. Uh, so to counter this UKIP rise, Labour have been actually quite flustered by it. Uh, none more so than uh, a man called Sadiq Khan, who uh, wants to be the Labour candidate for London Mayor, and by extension, wants to be London Mayor. Um, he wrote... <laughs> that really didn't need spelling out. <laughs> um, he wrote an open letter to UKIP supporters in the Daily Express. Um, I printed off a copy because I'm guessing that most people haven't read it. Um, this is one of the most cringeworthy pieces of writing by any politician in the history of this great nation, right? He starts off. This is his opening line. <sighs> I know you're fed up with politics as usual. Which is pretty much doing politics as usual. <sighs> I get that you're angry at political parties. I understand that you feel successive governments have done too little to help you. I don't reckon anyone else has written read on beyond this point, right? So this is, I'm already in enchanted waters. Sounds like some sort of youth worker, doesn't he? Send in Sadiq. The voters aren't listening to us anymore. Send Sadiq in, he'll sort out. Hi, guys. <sighs> Heard you didn't vote the other day. <sighs> you know why I almost didn't vote? Yeah. I'm just like you guys. <laughs> I mean, I did vote. I'm an elected politician. But, you know, apart from that, we've got so much in common. <laughs> I know, you think it's sort of uncool to vote, right? They're what? Lying, cheating bastards. Yeah, there's that as well. Um, he goes on. Uh, oh, God. Too many people have struggled for too long. Too little of the benefits of growth have gone to working people and too much to the very wealthiest. And politicians, seem, pff, politicians seem to speak a different language. What I don't understand about this sort of, like, when politicians... He's slagging himself off. Look... I said I'm a dickhead. Are you lot happy now? <laughs> but the Labour Party has changed. We know we made mistakes and we're determined to put them right. Take immigration. In the past, we were too quick to dismiss concerns about immigration. Or even worse, accused people of prejudice. We all remember Gillian Duffy. I bet most people didn't actually, Sadiq, but thanks for reminding everyone. <laughs> thanks for reminding everyone that the Prime Minister of Britain abused a kindly old lady for asking about immigration. Gillian Duffy, who was that, mate? Oh, yeah, what a twat. <laughs> There's a bit here which I genuinely don't know what he's getting at. He goes, so what are we offering now? Learning the English language will be a priority. Does he mean for the country or for the shadow cabinet? I'm not <laughs> sure what he means. This is an incredible... This has got to be the boldest claim I've heard since the last election. We'll stop hard-working people from being ripped off. Where? How? Three pan of pan bananas? Whoa! I'm Sadiq Khan. They're only worth two pan of pan. 
Stop people getting ripped off. Yeah, man, yeah, man. Let us say, yeah, yeah. Free answers for 30 quid. Yeah, it's quality shit, blood. I told you, it's quality shit. Whoa, 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 whoa. That looks like Oregano to me. You're wrapping this guy off. I'm Sadiq Khan. <laughs> There's an incredible... Uh, <laughs> oh, my word. It doesn't get any better. Um, he now says something that, uh, just out of nowhere, puts it in there, probably because it felt nice. It's always easier to lose someone's trust than to win it back. <laughs> Got off a fortune cookie. <laughs> it's better to have loved... It's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. But over the next year, we'll do everything we can to prove we're on your side. This is his final sign-off. All we ask is that you keep an open mind. (laughs) That's it. Labour, keep an open mind. (laughs) Labour, I know we might look shit now, but they're really rubbish. Just think about it. Labour, give us five minutes, mate. Tragic. Uh, so that was... Uh, I think UKIP should just do a reply. Dear Sadiq, people are speaking a different language. That's because you let too many different immigrants into this country. <laughs> we'll keep an open mind, but we'll keep the borders closed. <laughs> Cheers. Nigel Farage. <laughs> Labour's campaign was, quite frankly, the most embarrassing campaign I've ever seen. Uh, it started with the broadcast uh, called The Incredible Unshrinking Man. Now, did anyone see this? You might have heard about it. Most people haven't seen it. It was a pipe political broadcast in black and white, set in olden days, right? And Nick Clegg is in the cabinet uh, amongst some very well-spoken, posh people, and they're all talking about um, how they, you know, they, they don't know what the NHS is. It's a caricature of the old Tory party. And Nick Clegg tries to stand up for what he believes in, but keeps shrinking, physically shrinking, every time he doesn't get his way. Now, someone in Labour headquarters obviously thought this was quite funny. They thought, I know what we'll do. This is going to be really funny. We'll paint the Tories as all these old rich bastards. Nick Clegg in the middle of it. And at the end, he can get chased by a cat. Right? That's literally what happened. That was a party political broadcast on behalf of the Labour Party, right? And I'm not sure what the moral of the story is. If you go into coalition, you might end up living in black and white and shrinking. Ridiculous. And the, uh, my main problem wasn't the attack on Nick Clegg, it was the attack on the Tory party. It was this sort of old-fashioned view that, look, we can't campaign against the Tory party at the moment because we're not sophisticated enough to deal with them. So all we'll do is pretend that they're all old, posh bastards and that should do the trick. You can't keep campaigning like that. The next election's going to be mayhem if they keep doing like that. Oh, you know the Tory party, mate? You know they're all weird, don't you? You know they're all posh? They all got bummed at school, you know, don't you? You know they all got bummed? Hey, mate, yeah, yeah, do you all have to wank on a biscuit? Yeah, yeah, weirdos. But you teach your fingers, you didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all bum each other, you know. All weird. That was a party political broadcast on behalf of the <laughs> Labour Party. Let's <laughs> see the level it's at. It's ridiculous. Can you imagine if the Tories did it the other way around? Hello, we're the Labour Party. We're all from up north. We can't cancel. We got a ferry for a dip. <laughs> go, this is awful. This is disgusting. This has to, mind you, I would love to see that as a broadcast. So I can't. Really... Uh, Ed Miliband, of course, to uh, reignite the campaign, decided to eat a bacon sandwich uh, in public. No. Never eat. I don't, you should never eat in public. Like, I don't even eat on a date. I, I eat weird. Like, I wolf it down. Like, don't eat. Don't let people see you eat. It's never going to look good. And if you're Ed Miliband, be very careful about everything. He looks weird breathing in public, let alone eating. <laughs> But someone had obviously come up with the idea. 
I know what we should do, guys. People think Ed's weird, right? Let me just float this out there. Let's be counterintuitive. Let's do something that makes him look weirder. I like it. Get him to eat a bacon sandwich. You know, the problem is with that, you could have asked him, he's such a consummate, or he thinks he's such a consummate politician. You could ask him any question at that thing. You could have said to him, oh, Ed, 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 what's your fur, mate? Uh, red or brown sauce? What you got on it? Red or brown? What you got? Red or brown, mate? Um... Uh, well, I've actually got both. Uh, I think, no, 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 look, I, I've obviously gone for red, but let me just say, look, you know, brown sauce makes a great contribution uh, to the sandwich market. Uh, and I know it employs a lot of people, uh, where are we, in, in, in Surrey. And uh, constantly trying to be the sort of consummate uh, great politician. Um, his speech in Turek was one of the most depressing. Uh, <laughs> Is that someone who works for him up there? Because there's one... I think that might be Yvette Cooper. One person in particular loving all the Ed Miliband hatred. He, uh, he does this thing, Miliband, where he closes... He's got this new tick where he closes his eyes at the end of a sentence in his speech. I don't know if anyone's noticed this, but he'll talk and he'll say, he'll say Look, um... Look, we know uh, the reason people didn't vote for us in Thurrock is because people think that the Labour Party isn't listening anymore. <laughs> mate, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stay awake. Where are you going, mate? It's almost like, it's a, if we know what it is. It's a coping mechanism. And I feel awful for exposing it. It's clearly a coping me- mechanism. It's him going, I really don't want to be making this speech. Find a happy place. Find a happy place. Find a happy place. Oh, God, they're still here. Maybe that's why it looks constantly surprised. Oh, God. Still in the middle of it. You know, he. Um, he gets applauded. This is one of the most tragic things I've ever heard. He gets applauded back into his office, right, by his staff whenever he comes back in. So if he's gone out to make a speech... That's true, though, isn't it? Who, were you telling me to shut up? Someone definitely said shut up then, didn't they? Who was it? It's all right, just say it, it's fine. It's just ironic that you now have shut up. What was it? Was it the too, too Hard on Ed Miliband? What is it? You can't just say shut up and then go quiet. What was the issue? It's fine. We can have a discussion about it. What's the issue? You're going to have to just... I love you. You say, you love me? You sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I love you. Fucking hell. You are? You're Spartacus. Right, I don't know what the fuck has happened at this gig. This this used to be a normal political night before the fucking Terminator got involved. I thought maybe people were getting offended that I was being too harsh on Ed Miliband, and I'm glad that he's not the mood in the room. Yeah, he gets applauded back in. Uh, His staff do this thing to reinforce him. Uh, so that when he's gone out and done a speech, the moment he comes back into the office, they burst into applause. That would freak me out. If I walk into a room and people start applauding, I immediately think my flies are down. It's like, shit right there. Ed Miliband. I mean, there must be... T- why are they they're doing this? Obviously, because they think, actually, he's quite... He's, he's shit. So what do is, that's why they're doing it. We'll make him feel better so that when he comes back in after a speech, we'll just give him a big round of applause for our little Ed. 
and that'll make him feel nice. Working in Ed, Ed Miliband's office must be like working in a 70s American sitcom. It's Ed Miliband, everyone. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Ed Miliband. There must be times when he's walked in, because they can't be, they can't, they're not on top of it all the time, obviously. Look at the state of it, right? <laughs> the operation, I meant. There must be times when he's come in, got a round of applause, when all he was doing was just having a really long dump. <laughs> oh, thanks. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. Quite a big one, that. Uh, deserved it, to be fair. Uh, they thought I was giving a speech on welfare reform, but uh, I've been eating a lot of red meat, like, re- re- <laughs> eating a lot of red meat recently. Earned it. Um, he must just think that he's Mr. Popular, though. He must just walk into rooms and think, fucking hell, I'm smashing it in there. Those guys love me. He uh, does another thing as well in his speech. And Gordon Brown used to do this, and he started doing it. And I was watching him, and I actually sort of had drifted off a bit. And then when he starts speaking like this, I'm like, I know what you're doing here, mate, because it does get your attention. Uh, it's when he does this, he'll go, um, you know, look, I, I understand that immigration is a major issue. Of course we get that. But, but look, uh, Thorick, <laughs> I'm the son of an immigrant. Uh, my father came here. As the and you're like, whoa, he's doing the emotional bit. Now, Gordon Brown used to do it, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> the NHS saved my sight. And you'd be like, whoa, 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 I thought you were a dick until now. Now you're sort of, <laughs> now I know you've struggled a bit. This is nice. But the problem is, is that this is politics. It's not the X factor. Like, sub stories don't work. Oh, my name's Ed. Oh. I actually went to quite a good school. Uh, I did quite well in my, in my A-levels, and then I went to a decent university. Uh, but I've always felt that there was something missing, so I, I went into politics, and I started working for an MP, and then I became a, became a special advisor, uh, and then I got parachuted into a safe seat. It was really difficult for me, and then ended up becoming a, a cabinet-level minister. And this whole struggle, I just felt I was never fulfilling my potential, so I knifed my brother in the back, and I became leader of the Labour Party and I just feel like something's missing. Ed, this is great. This competition is all about the cost of living crisis. I, I hear what you're saying. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is a uh, rundown of uh, the highlights really of the European election campaign. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now. In the second half, I'm going to be joined uh, by a man that I was so excited about meeting. Uh, his book, Absolutely Blew My Mind. He's led a life that I don't think anyone in modern politics could come anywhere near. Um, I hope there'll be a lot of questions, so do think about them in the break. I'll get around as many as you can uh, in the second half. We'll have Majid Nawaz. Uh, we'll take a 20-minute break. Get yourself a beer or a glass of wine or whatever it is you like. I've been Matt Ford. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. Hello. Everyone's brightly lit. Nice to see all your faces. There you go. The cloak of anonymity. You're all fine. Uh, well, we've had some uh, phenomenal guests down here uh, over the last uh, year and a half. Uh, George Galloway, Nigel Farage, Alistair Campbell, uh, people from across the political spectrum. And tonight's guest um, is slightly different to some of the guests we've had before. Um, I first saw him on telly uh, during uh, a show called When Tommy Met Mo, which was a story about how um, Tommy Robinson, the leader of the English Defence League, uh, had left. And it was the first time I'd heard of tonight's guest. And I just 
was one of the most electric experiences of my sort of modern political life. Seeing this guy take on such established views within and outside of the Muslim community was something that I didn't think I'd ever see on television. Uh, I then read his book, Radical, and of all the guests, I think this is fair to say, of all the guests we've had here, and probably ever will have, uh, Majid has led a life that no one else in politics, I think, is likely to have led. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, without further ado, uh, to have, I'm sure, a conversation uh, like no other, please give a massive welcome to Majid Nawaz. So, I was moving the um, station, stationary. Uh, I was moving the gear around there because I wanted yeah. to be closer. I thought if we were sat at the back of the room, it sure. looks a bit like I was hiding. Uh, well, Majid, Majid. I, uh, it's Majid. Yeah, like magic. Like magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, your life story. It, should we go through it slightly chronologically sure. uh, to start? How do you want? Um, your, your story starts, doesn't it, with you being the victim of racist abuse in South End, and that was yeah. sort of the start of what effectively radicalised you. Yeah. Um, it's fair to say that there were probably other young people in South End that were the victims of racist abuse at that time as well. What was it about you, do you think, that made you go down that sort of radicalised route that perhaps others wouldn't have? So to... First of all, thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for being such um, a wonderful audience. To put this into context, I was born and raised in Essex in South End, um, and it's the place where currently I think UKIP are on the verge of controlling the council. Um, it kind of tells you a bit about where I'm from and you know, my hometown. Uh, by the age of 15, I was uh, facing some uh, very serious and violent racism. And when I say violent racism, I mean hammer attacks, uh, machete attacks, hammer attacks to the head uh, on my friends, machete attacks, screwdriver attacks, uh, being, forced, being held back and forced to watch my white English friends stabbed for being blood traitors for having befriended people like me. And this was in sort of like the early 90s in my teenage years. And it coincided with the genocide in Bosnia. Uh, so both domestically and uh, in terms of foreign policy, I became very, very disillusioned with what I found and saw around me. Um, I remember, as an example, uh, Essex police authorities. On one occasion, they arrested my uh, then 16-year-old brother. At, well, they arrested all of us, but because my then 16-year-old brother, in uh, broad daylight, in a park, was playing with a plastic BB gun. Does anyone know the BB guns? The sort of you know, the plastic things, they shoot plastic pellets. Yeah. And he was playing in Chalkwell Park in Southend with this plastic gun. Um, in the days when terrorism wasn't associated with Muslims, it was associated, sadly, with the Irish. And, you know, uh, we were just like these sort of young, young, happy brown kids playing in the park. But an old lady saw him and decided he must be about to rob a bank, as quite evidently young 16-year-olds do. So she reported it to the police. And Essex police took this very seriously, and they mounted a day-long surveillance operation. And by the evening by the night time, sort of around 3am, all of us were arrested at gunpoint on suspicion of armed robbery. Um, and we had guns put to our heads. They were, they were, the police were carrying um, submachine guns, actually, and they had a helicopter in the sky that put a spotlight on our car. And we were held overnight. They released us the next morning. But in the backdrop of none of the racists ever being convicted for any of the hammer attacks and the stabbings, in the background to, to Bosnia and the genocide. Uh, uh, so everyone's, of course, heard of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and the McPherson inquiry into that murder. This was a year, exactly a year before Stephen Lawrence was murdered. So these are the bad old days that I'm talking about. I've got a caveat here that things are very different today. You know, it's, it's incredible um, that we now have a black president in America 
and a white wrapper, Eminem. You know, it's like the world's turned upside down. <laughs> but you, I would have laughed at you in those days if that's what you know you would have said to me would have happened in 2014. But that's where we are. So the world has changed. But these were the bad old days before the inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence, before the government found that the police were institutionally racist. We were living that experience. So as you said correctly, lots of lots of people experience that. Why didn't Dwayne Brooks, mm. who also happens to be a Liberal Democrat, uh, <laughs> that, that, so Dwayne Brooks who survived the Stephen Lawrence murder and sadly had to watch his friend stabbed to death, why didn't he become an extremist? Why did I join uh, a revolutionary uh, global Islamist organization and go down a path which no doubt we'll speak about? I think there's a final missing factor which many on the left choose to ignore when it mm. comes to Islamist extremism. And that's what I call ideology. So as well as the anger and the grievances that I faced, that's not sufficient. Lots of people are angry, and they grow out of that anger. But at that crit- critically, at that vulnerable stage, I came across a recruiter who, uh, the only way I can describe it is that that recruiter crystallized or freeze-framed my anger with dogma, with ideological dogma. And how, to give you a bit of insight as to how that can be done, is is how you, sh- you politicise and shift someone's identity. So that, can everyone over, should I turn around a bit? So a little, yeah. yeah. So, you see me. so you politicise and shift someone's identity. In, in, like, so whereas I'd associated all of these problems with racism, this recruiter, who was a leading member of Hizb tahrir the Islamist group I eventually joined, he said, look, look, you think this is about racism, but look at Bosnia. There are white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Muslims who are being slaughtered by the Serbs because they're Muslims. You are a, a fool. You're naive if you think it's just about your skin colour. Europe cannot tolerate the presence of Muslims in, in, you know, in this country. It's, it's how what I call the Islamist narrative. It's how recruiters use facts that are half-truths. The half that was true was there was a genocide going on in Bosnia. And then they, they merge these half-truths together to produce a narrative that isn't true. And that's why I call them half-truths. But to a, an angry young 15-year-old... That all made sense. Of course, look, wherever I look, Muslims are being killed. Whether it's Palestine, Kashmir, Bosnia, Chechnya, it's always Muslims being killed. That means there must be a war against Islam and Muslims. And the only solution, if there's a war against Islam and Muslims, is for me to defend Muslims and Islam uh, by fighting for their rights. And that was the narrative that I sort of adopted at 16 years old. And and that, that recruiter that you met, that was just a chance meeting in the street, someone just handing out flyers in Southend. Well, yes, he happened to be critical for a recruiter as a trust factor. He happened to be a medical student. Now, I'm a law graduate, an Arabic graduate, and I did a master's in political theory. There's a myth that Islamist extremists are uneducated. In fact, on average, they are better educated than the average levels of education in America and Britain. This man happened to be a medical student at Bart's Medical College in London, but he was from my hometown. So the families knew each other. I trusted him. He was clearly intelligent. He is. He's an articulate. He's still with the group. He's an articulate, intelligent man. Um, but then so was Che Guevara. It doesn't mean we're militant communists today. You know, Lenin, Trotsky, these aren't stupid people. But ideologues and ideology, what it does, the dogma, it, it sort of it, it prevents us from thinking beyond a, a set framework. So there's that initial meeting that sort of captures your interest and gives you almost yeah. this sort of exciting narrative yeah. about what's happening around the world, but a, a deep sense of injustice as well. There's then the motivation for you to do something about <coughs> it. So your role in the group then grew quite quickly. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, this was the... So Islamist extremism, and, and for everyone here, just so I can briefly describe what I mean by Islamism, the desire to impose any given interpretation of Islam over society is what I mean by Islamism, not the religion of Islam. Right? So I, I, have, I don't even have a right 
to say that I tolerate a religious Muslim. It's not my business. Um, you know, it's not about being conservatively religious or not being conservatively religious. What it's about is the desire to impose one's interpretations on others. Other and people. so in shorthand, this is Sharia law. It's, it's the view that Sharia law must be imposed on other people. And in the 90s, in Britain, like pretty much in the 60s, socialism was the zeitgeist for angry young students. Angry young British Muslims used to be British Asians. They became British Muslims because mm. of the spread of Islamist ideology. That was the zeitgeist. Everyone and their uncle was an Islamist in the 90s. It's what the French dubbed Londonistan. And there's a reason they dubbed it Londonistan, because, you know, it was, you know, I became president of the student union in Newham College. That's how popular people were voting for us in colleges, even though we didn't believe in democracy. But people, people you know, we, we were, we, we were the zeitgeist. And, and, and it wasn't, it was a very, I'd even say it was a very sexy thing to be involved in. People now, you know, they glorify you, know, you, wear, you get T-shirts with Che Guevara on. Yeah. That's what it was for us. It was this was the way we were going to change the I world. That's the irony. You, you can't have a T-shirt with the Prophet Muhammad on it because no. you get into a lot of well, trouble. I, try, I, try, I tried that one, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I think you, think you saw what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you get, what, what fascinates me about... Um, is it fair to call it extremism, that sort of Islamist ideology? I'd say anyone who wa- wants to impose their interpretation of religion on anyone else is an extremist. So what attracts people to that extremism? I understand that sort of, um, if you're the victim of injustice yourself, you're then presented with this global narrative, the desire to act. And what you also had was ability. And that's what made you so uh, successful, stroke dangerous, was that you obviously possessed some of the skills that the person you met in the street had. Uh, that you are charismatic, that you are trustworthy, that you are articulate. You then s- yourself tried to spread that view across Europe and into Egypt and places like that. Was there ever any, a point, and I understand that these things deeply motivate people, but were there ever any, in your own mind, periods of doubt? Yeah, as you said, I mean, I'm glad you sang my praises. <laughs> as, as you said, I was committed. I, I eventually rose to the rank of the leadership in Britain. I then spread this group uh, from Britain. I was one of the first British Pakistanis that went to Pakistan and co-founded the group there. Um, and then I went to Denmark and did the same. I used to study in, in, in SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, for my law degree. And then Monday to Friday. And on the weekends, I would fly every weekend out to Denmark to set up the Danish-Pakistani chapter there. And then I eventually ended up in Egypt. So it's um, actually, quite, for a young lad, it's quite a cool life. Yeah. But, you know, superficially, sort of, you're on planes, yeah. you're going through duty-free, like, you probably, yeah. you know, I mean, at the time you were Muslim, so you couldn't buy any of the stuff there, yeah. but you sort of, you know, you're having a wonderful time, yeah. and it sort of felt almost like, you know, the trappings of well, success we were as a result changing of, the world. Yeah. We were genuine, actually, we did change the world, but just not for the better. It was, like, <laughs> seriously, I mean, we, there is a reason why um, we have currently about 500 British-born and raised Muslims fighting with a group more extreme than Al-Qaeda in Syria. The group's called ISIS, okay? Mm. And this group called ISIS that is more extreme than Al-Qaeda is beheading Al-Qaeda members. And these, the majority of their members, are European born and raised Muslims. There is, there's a reason why we've ended up with that nightmare scenario. Because of people, everything that people like me did in the 90s to lay the groundwork, the foundations for the spread of this ideology. So we did change the world, just sadly not in a, in a, in a, in a way that was conducive or better. You say in your book, and it was one of the most um, sort of refreshing things to hear, was that you and the people who are now sort of continuing the work that you left behind and, and now sort of have turned your back on, but deliberately almost preyed upon, in as many words, the, um, the sensitivities and the paranoias of 
predominantly sort of white middle class liberals yeah. uh, and their fears of not wanting to appear racist effectively allowed you to do whatever you wanted to do. Yeah, no, this is um, one of my biggest bugbears today. And I, I, I'm a, a member of and a parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats, okay, I know. I was going to come on to extreme organisations yeah. later in the... Uh, <laughs> I, know we've later had a, the I know we've had a hard time. But what I, the type of liberalism that I believe in, I actually don't believe that tolerating bigotry and intolerance is very liberal. I don't think it is. I think that we, we confused tolerance with liberalism. Mm. They are two different things. Even illiberal people can be tolerant. Liberalism has, at its heart, a mission to liberalise. And that's where we went wrong. We, and I don't mean neoconservatism. I don't mean invading countries. I mean, just as we would shout down racism if we saw it, or shout down homophobia if we saw it, because liberals do not like illiberalism when they see it. They don't like bigotry, and they shout it down in civil society. Mm. You know, we don't invade the homes of homophobes, but we tell them they're wrong. Okay? Yeah. We don't invade the homes of racists, but we tell them they're wrong. What we stopped doing, or never even started doing, was telling people from minority communities that had illiberal practices that those practices were wrong. Because we then adopted another doctrine that, that got in the way. And that doctrine um, is an abuse of the noble idea of multiculturalism. Um, it was, it's what led to Britain today where we have what I call monocultural ghettos, where people are living <coughs> together apart, where communities aren't mixing, which has led to the rise of groups like the EDL and, and UKIP. And on the other extreme in a symbiotic relationship with them, the Islamist extremists. So how does, you know, modern society, I think probably the, the burqa debate is the one that would um, sort of spring to mind. How does a liberal society deal with uh, an illiberal symbol? So I'll give you a worse example than that, if I may. In 1993, um, in Brent Council, and this is like, you know, at the peak of Londonistan, when everything I've just described and the way we were just like pandering to illiberalism, it was at the peak of all of that, Brent Council put forward a motion that today most of you would gawp at and think, oh my God, how could that ever have happened? True story, it happened. Anyone from Brent here? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that to be one. Um, <coughs> Brent's next door to my constituencies, I, I can say this. Um, <coughs> uh, Brent Council put forward a motion to legalise female genital mutilation. Right? True story, you can check it up in the papers. They wanted to legalise cutting off a woman's clitoris in the name of t cultural tolerance. Um, in 1993, there was one councillor in 93 that was brave enough, a, a female, a lady, she was, you know, she deserves a medal, she was brave enough to stand up and say, not in my name. And she put forward a counter motion in Brent Council that basically, the rough wording of it was, uh, that, 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 that tolerating FGM in the name of cultural diversity is as bad as tolerating burning the widow on the pyre. You know, that practice that used to be in the olden days, practiced in South Asia, particularly in India. And no, just because a culture used to practice this, we will not accept this sort of behaviour in modern Britain. Uh, a prize for guessing what happened to her. She was hounded out of work. She, was, she received multiple death threats. She was called an imperialist. She was threatened with rape. She was told that she thinks she knows what's good for African people and, uh, and, and in the end had to leave her job. Now, the motion was struck down, thankfully, but she faced such a witch hunt that she had to leave her job. How did I discover this story? Because last month, because of that young Somali girl, British Somali girl, anyone saw that petition that she put up on, on change.org asking Michael Gove to teach 
anti-FGM education in every school across the country yeah. because I think there's a few hundred thousand young girls that are susceptible to this practice even today. And there's yet to be a conviction in Britain for the practice, even though thousands of girls are subjected to it every day, uh, sorry, every year. <coughs> so Michael Gove responded and said, yes, I will teach this in all the schools. And Brent Council, fast forward 20 years, started teaching education in the schools about how to prevent FGM and how to spot the signs. So a eagle-eyed journalist did their homework and found this counsellor and went back and interviewed her and said, how do you feel that 20 years later the situation is reversed in 180 degrees the opposite way? (laughs) 180 (laughs) degrees. You can tell I didn't do maths. Um, And she was speaking. And one thing that really struck me was her... It's a quote from the interview. And she says... I think the reason why it's taken this long, 20 years, for such a clearly a reprehensible practice, and the reason why there's yet to be a conviction, even though we've waited 20 years just for this first step, is that people are scared of being accused of being racist. And that's what really struck me. And that that, that example, I think, epitomizes everything that went wrong with the model that we adopted in the 90s, the model that I exploited, the model that allowed me to run around the world exporting revolutionary Islamism from Britain. But what's key, isn't it, to defeat these things? Because otherwise, she's right, you would just reinforce for any sort of would-be radical the idea that this is white people poking their noses into black people or into Muslims' uh, communities and trying to dictate their lives, is that what's fundamental is it takes people from within those communities to stand up in, in some number and, and break the line and actually say... This has nothing to do with us. That's crucial. How on earth do you, do you empower those people, though? <clears throat> For instance, in, in, in the modern Muslim society, uh, there would be people like yourself in the debates changing, but in that, you know, within that extreme example of FGM, how on earth do you empower people within that community to, to not fear the people that are oppressing them? So in that case with the FGM, it was a young British Somali girl that started the petition that went viral. Um, but generally, in, in, within Muslim communities... I've got this concept that I attempted to articulate through a, news, a six-minute Newsnight film that you saw, and you saw how I got shot down. Um, not, not literally. Uh, but there were you know, two Muslims in the studio debate afterwards that figuratively, figuratively shot me down. Um, because it's so difficult. The, the, sorry, so the concept that I'm talking about is uh, not minority communities, what I call minorities within minorities. Minorities within minorities means that, yes, you have minority communities, but there are individual voices within those minority communities that want to break free of the groupthink. They want to liberate themselves from the community hegemony, right? Liberal voices within illiberal contexts within minority communities. So women that want to speak out against being uh, arranged marriages, these sorts of examples. Those voices, if it's feminist Muslims, ex-Muslims, atheists who left the religion, which in most uh, like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, it's punishable by death. Yeah? Um, people that want to fight for free speech against blasphemy laws, which is not just punishable by death, but is likely to get you lynched to death anyway um, on the streets of Pakistan, where my family's from. Um, so those voices are the voices we need to empower. The problem is today that those voices are so few and far between because the intimidation, the backlash that those voices face is so, so severe that it's enough to scare people away. Would you say that Tommy Robinson would count as one of those voices? So, so the reason Tommy left the EDL, as is, so if anyone, the documentary's on YouTube, it's called When Tommy Met Mo, I'm Not Mo, right? Um, 
he, there was a chap called Mo that didn't really impress Tommy, and, and so you know I had to fly in like Superman and save the day and convince Tommy to leave the uh, EDL. It's a true story. It happened. Um, so, so, so the reason Tommy left the EDL is I challenged this chap called Mo, right? And I said to him, "What do you think of um, cutting off the hand of a thief? Because this is something that the Quran literally prescribes." And he said, "Of course, I'm against that." Now, the thing is, I know, having spent 13 years on the leadership of Islamist organization, I know how we were trained to dodge questions like that. Mm. So then I switched the question. I said, okay, in an Islamic state, if all the Sharia conditions were met, i.e. everything's ideal, what's your ideal solution to theft? Would you, in that context, condemn cutting off the hand of the thief? And then, no lie, (laughs) they had to edit the interview because it would have been the whole episode otherwise. It took him 26 minutes of me doing a Paxman on him and he wouldn't answer the question. And, and in the end, his answer was, I have to refer to my scholars. Yeah, yeah. And I said, look, I find it morally reprehensible that you would defer on an answer about stoning people to death or chopping off the hand of the thief or killing the blasphemer or the apostate when morally, it's a, it's a no-brainer. You should, you instinctively, immediately, you should be saying this is a, this is a wrong thing. That, that we sh- in the modern day and age, we must not aspire to such medieval forms of punishment. But he couldn't. And when Tommy saw that exchange, he felt that he finally met a Muslim that was able to um, challenge extremism within a Muslim context and be, and be willing to talk about these things openly. So he, he basically came to me and said, I don't think the EDL is needed anymore. I, I think that I've had enough. I want to leave. I want you to help me leave. Organizations like Quilliam, which is the organization I founded six years ago, co-founded, to challenge extremism can carry on doing <coughs> their job. Do you think he... What I found fascinating about Robinson was... He was leading, effectively, a hooligan element around the country, smashing you know, the country to pieces, bricking coppers and you know, scaring people in the street and behaving in the most reprehensible way. But when he was interviewed, he would say things that he thought, you know what, he is either more savvy than Nick Griffin or there's actually genuinely a flicker of hope within this man because he seemed to... First, I met the distinction between radicalism and racism, which I thought either, if that's a PR strategy, it's smart. If not, it's even smarter. He actually seemed to want to reach out to Islam and, and want to understand Muslims. Do you think that's a fair assessment of him? I think, having met him, and no, he's in prison now, but <laughs> for something he did that was unrelated to all of this stuff, it's mortgage fraud. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> right, so he'll be out in a month and get his revenge on all of you. Uh, for laughing at him. For the record, I think he's a lovely chap. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Tommy Robinson, again, this is some. I'm speaking now, look, you know, I, I want to caveat all of this before people think, what, oh, this guy's crazy. I'm speaking as someone who's faced violent, you know, racism. I faced, uh, which we haven't spoken about, my imprisonment in Egypt and torture um, as a member of that organisation. I'm no stranger to the sorts of grievances that people on the left would speak about because I have lived them. Despite all of that, I'd say Tommy Robinson is a man who genuinely was trying to do the right thing, but am I allowed to say you fucked up? Um, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's quite mild, actually. <laughs> um, and as evidenced by the fact he left the, the organisation to great, great opposition. Now, what most people don't know is that, yes, he was arrested for violent assault, but his violent assault, I mean, and that's not the reason he's in prison now because of mortgage fraud, that's actually true, but the, the arrest before that, which was um, travelling on a false document to America is because of the arrest before that, okay? So <laughs> we're talking three arrests ago, right? Okay. Now, it, it all yeah. started with this one. Right. And this is what the point I'm trying to get at. This, the first arrest and conviction 
was because of violent assault at an EDL rally. But who did he assault? He assaulted a neo-Nazi who attempted to grab the mic on the stage of the EDL and take over an EDL rally because there is a very strong neo-Nazi contingent that would attend their rallies. Tommy's always fought the neo-Nazis attempt to overtake the EDL. And he attacked this neo-Nazi and was therefore convicted. He didn't attack a UAF member, United Against Fascism, and he didn't attack a Muslim. He attacked a neo-Nazi. It's that conviction that then led him to try and travel on false passport and false passport to America because he wasn't allowed to travel because of that conviction. And he actually got in on a false passport in America and it was on his way back that he got caught. (laughs) Tells you how good the Americans, they always stopped me. They didn't stop him. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, And so... It kind, of ind- it kind of indicates to me, this is an example of what I think he was trying to do the right thing. He went about it in completely the wrong way. But By setting up the EDL? It was tr- yeah, because it was, an, it was a reaction against this Al-Mahadroon demonstration where they were, you know, they were uh, accosting those returning soldiers and mm. calling them enemies of God and saying, we're going to behead you, which they eventually did. I mean, the guys that beheaded the Lee Rid- Paul Lee Rigby in Woolwich mm. were converted to Islam by Al-Mahadroon, by the leader of Al-Mahadroon. So, so their anger, their original anger of Tommy and his friends was very real and legitimate. But of course, they, you know, they didn't know how to go about it. And why I'm saying that is because when he met an organization like Quilliam that attempts to deal with these things through a liberal lens, um, he left the EDO and he said, you guys carry on. Are you still in touch with him? Well, he's in prison, so that would be breaking the law. <laughs> well, but yeah. do you visit him? Do you send him well, So Yeah, I mean, we've had, so my managing director, who's called Gafar, he went to visit him uh, about uh, two weeks ago. And that's how I know he's, he's going to be out soon. Okay. Um, and we, our aim was to go to other neo-Nazis and far-right members of far-right organizations with Tommy in an attempt to de-radicalize them, the way we do with Islamist extremists. And that was the other thing that I was, uh, you know, I was criticized by some on the left for being willing to sit with him. And I, I didn't sit with him until he left the EDO anyway. I refused to on air on that documentary. I said, I won't sit with this man unless and until the conversation is about him leaving the EDO, which is what eventually it became. Um, but we genuinely think, like we go to Islamist extremists and attempt to bring them out, and have done from um, extremist organisations, the same can be done uh, with the EDL. And we bring them all to liberal with a small l uh, centre, the centre ground. There's, there's, a, you know, there's a form of legitimate political expression, which even UKIP, though it's on the edges of that spectrum, you know, it's still standing for elections, it's not rioting in the streets. And so, frankly, look, I'm a Lib Dem, but if he joined UKIP, it's better than being the leader of the EDL in this country and scaring my grandmother on the street. <laughs> In terms of, you know, you mentioned UKIP. UKIP have had a lot of charges thrown at them during this election campaign, a lot of which I think are unfair. Do you think they are a racist or a fascist party? I think we make a great mistake calling UKIP racist. I think they are xenophobic, and there's a difference between xenophobia and racism. And I think that rather than pander to... We've got to engage with the arguments. You know, we can throw racism at them all we like. It's going to bounce off. You know, did you see Batfink? Yeah. Does everyone remember Batfink, that cartoon? You know, my wings are made of steel. Yeah. That Batfink, yeah, you Google him, you'll see it. <laughs> right, he's got wings that are made of steel and bullets deflect off his wings. That's what Farage is. You can't, you call Farage racist, you call, you say, look, your wife's German and you're attacking non-Brits taking our job. It just bounces off him. Oh, I remember Batfink. He used to get shit-faced and smoke all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like Nigel Farage. Yeah, 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 I remember. So I remember. That's the thing. We've got to engage with the arguments themselves. And that, those arguments... One thing Tony Blair did say right, you know, was in his Radio 4 interview. And <laughs> Please, you, the stage is yours. Yeah, the stage is yours. <laughs> I can see you're a Blairite. Um, is, is that, you know, when he, in that interview, I think it was two mornings ago, 
Um, yeah. And he said, what we need to be doing is, I can't do the impression, I'll leave that to you. Well, we, <laughs> we need to be challenging them in their arguments, taking them head on and going out there to those working class communities who would have traditionally voted Labour um, and, and, and engaging with their concerns directly. That's the only way forward. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. See, a lot of people blame Tony Blair and George W. Bush for the rise of Islamic extremism in this country and uh, indeed in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that interventionist foreign policy, which I think it's fair to say you're probably against, um... I'm against invasions, not against legal interventions. (coughs) So Libya was fine for me. It was approved by the UN and the Arab League and the Libyan people. What I was against and always have been is the invasion of Iraq. I was in prison at the time in Egypt, but still I opposed it. Um, For what my voice was worth. What about about the action against Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11? Well, uh, I I think that every um, intervention needs to have a legal sanction, whether it's the Arab League whether it's the United Nations or in the case of Syria, um, in the case of Syria, the chemical weapons and the use, yeah. that would have been a moment um, which we missed and it's too late. Um, or in the case of Ukraine, not saying that we should have, but if we had, there was a legal reason because of the treaty that America and Britain signed with Russia that we would guarantee the security of Ukraine. So there's a legal cover for intervention. And that's what I say needs to be the minimum threshold. I don't think that was there for the 9-11 wars. Um, okay. Um, yeah. um, <laughs> feel free to. Feel I mean, all I would say, frankly, is that <laughs> look, you, look, yes, look, you had Resolution 1441, frankly, that was voted through unanimously at the UN Security Council, yeah. uh, that said that Saddam had uh, these weapons. Look, you had yeah. Resolution 678 <laughs> that had been in place. Uh, that said any further material breach was a legal sanction. Of course, the Secretary General gave his advice. <laughs> let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait and see where the chill pot inquiry concludes. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, well, I, I, just, I just wonder, it, almost in retrospect, what your view of Blair is, because he's got this sort of... Um, he, his campaign to help you get funding. Well, Tony Blair, this is the UK version of my book, and it's got, you know, it's got sort of uh, Tom Holland, it's got, you know, it's got sort of uh, Riz Ahmed, Four Lions, you know, the actor? You know, he's, Four Lions and, and uh, a few yeah. other... Fi- like, he's done Reluctant Fundamentalist, a few other films. Now, Tony Blair endorsed the book. So the British publishers... Ledge. <laughs> 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 Yeah, boy. Well, okay. Matthew, this is well read, actually. You got do- this is doggy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see you're a fan. It's a pleasure yeah, to meet you. Thank cheers, you. Bob. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, the American, so the British publishers <laughs> decided that it wouldn't be good for sales to put Tony Blair's endorsement on this version. <laughs> However, when it was published in America, the American publishers leapt at the opportunity 
to put him on the cover. So his endorsement is on the American version of the book. I've met him. Um, you know, he is what I would describe if I had met him a thousand years ago, would probably be my prophet, and I would probably be following a religion called Blairism. He's a he loves prophets. Not as in, not that I follow him. What I'm saying is the sort of person, <laughs> the sort of person that, you know, the sort of, sorry, let me clarify that. Not that I follow him in his religion called Blairism, meaning if I lived a thousand years ago, I'd be a thousand years less wiser than I am now. <laughs> and, and that people follow people like him because he is a very, very powerful an imposing persona. Yeah. You know, I've met him. I've met him a few times, and he is. He's somebody that's quite, you know, persuasive. Mm-hmm. Let's put it there. Even when I listened to him the other day on Radio 4, and I was thinking, I wish that... I mean, he's far better than what we've got at the moment, except I don't agree with... If he'd stopped at Northern Ireland, right, I would have been a huge fan of his. But, you know, Iraq went a bit too much for me. Um, I, I would say that. I'm a Liberal Democrat. But I do think that that's where, you know, that's where he went a bit funny. Um, but he has this sort of personality, this sort of personality that is actually very, very, it, it sort of leaves a lasting impact on you, even when you meet him. But it, it, it clearly left an impact on um, Murdoch's wife. <laughs> <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, yeah. allegedly. Yeah. Not allegedly. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. She, no, no. I'm not saying they did anything. She said, she wrote in her own thing, she loved his legs. And left, he left an impact on her somehow. Oh, whether, that, he, whether that went anywhere else, and she, she was very impressed with it. Physically, I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know if, not everyone in the room obviously has had the chance to meet uh, Tony Blair. Physically impressive yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, he is. Fucking, no, <laughs> I'm telling you, you snort at me. Those forearms was the first thing that struck me. Fucking <laughs> forearms for a bloke. Huge great hands, really wide shoulders, yeah. and these sort of piercing blue eyes. They are piercing. Yeah, yeah. They actually are piercing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in terms of what him and George Bush stood for, there's a great bit in the book. And I, when I first started reading this, I was telling all my mates about it. I said, this book, the way it starts is amazing because it starts with you uh, in the blindfold in the back of a van in Egypt, post 9 11, being taken to a torture jail. Yeah. Fast forwards to you in a garden party talking to George W. Bush about what the definition of torture is. Yeah. Can I, can I tell you what happened there? Yeah, please. So um, I was in his house in Texas, and uh, we're discussing the Egyptian revolution um, while Mubarak was in the very same prison he held me in. It was called Mazrat or a prison. And Bush asked us a question. We were with Egyptian revolutionaries, and Bush asked us a question. He said, um, what do you think should come first? Should it be constitution, uh, elections, and then justice against Mubarak? Or should it be justice, and then elections, and then a constitution? Without exception, all the Egyptian Egyptians, um, meaning because I wasn't an Egyptian Egyptian, but I was there, having had sort of been in prison in Egypt for five years, I was a nominal, honorary Egyptian. Um, all the Egyptian Egyptians said, justice against Mubarak first, then elections, then a constitution. And I said, no, 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 hold on, I don't agree with that. I think you should have, you should set a constitution first, then have elections, then pursue justice. And my reasoning was, I uh, think you know, history is kind of, you know, you know uh, somewhat vindicates this reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, if you try, if you have justice first, that's called mob rule. Then if you have elections, the most organized party before and after the revolution was the Muslim Brotherhood. They will win. No one else was organized enough, even though the vast majority of people are not Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Overwhelming majority of Egyptians are not Islamists. They are Muslims, they are devout, but they are not Islamists. But the, 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 we had what, what we call the voice of the disorganized 
minority dictating the discourse of the disorganized majority. Do you want me to say that again? <laughs> um, but that's what happened in Egypt. So the Brotherhood won. Then they drafted a constitution in their own image because they controlled the government. So the constitution became a party political document. But if you start with the constitution, who's drawing it up? You need a committee. So that wasn't the point of the story. Yeah. Yeah, you can. So Bush interrupted. And he said, oh, you know, so tell me, why do you know so much about Egypt? So I start telling him my story. <laughs> And I say, you know, so I was a member of Hizb al-Tahrir. I joined an Islamist organization. I kind of exported it to different countries. Ended up in Egypt, got imprisoned. Uh, the state security blindfolded me, tied my hands behind my back, took me to the torture dungeons in Cairo and proceeded to torture everyone. He says, stop right there. Right. You are good at voices. Yeah. So as only the commander <laughs> of the free world can do, right? He commanded me to stop. So I stopped. <laughs> um, and he said, and this is really interesting because, you know, he is a very, very likable, amiable chap, but he committed a Bushism in my presence. Mm-hmm. It was hilarious because he said, so I say, look, you know, we witnessed torture and I'm continuing the story. So he stops me and he says, how do you define torture? <laughs> now, obviously, this is the administration that legalized torture, Wardable. I, I don't think I need to explain that to this audience, do I? Well, you know, so uh, they war reporting torture. Uh, yeah. an enhanced interrogation technique. Exactly, right? <laughs> So I thought, I didn't know what to say to the guy. I thought, well, you know, you know electrocution. And he said, yeah, that's torture. Carry on. <laughs> now, that's a true story. I mean, that's actually what he said to me. Now, the thing is, I still liked him. That was the odd thing. Like, you know, I disagree with all the policies. I dis- I've actually challenged Senator King in, Brit- in the British Parliament on waterboarding. I'd, I've been a vocal critic of drone strikes, of rendition to torture, all of this. But he was a likeable chap. He just was. But did you not feel any of that old? Because I think sometimes, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of link any of, sort of my life to yours, but I, st- I, I mean, I, I joined the Socialist Worker Party when I was 14. Did you? Uh, really? <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been on my own journey, uh, Magic. Uh, <laughs> in the slums of suburban Nottingham, uh, where I was held against my will by an overbearing mother. Uh, <laughs> Until I was 18. But I still sort of feel, even as a Blairite now, uh, occasionally the sort of flicker of, I won't call it radic- the radical, but an occasional burning or a yearning for the sort of old, when I used to really believe in communism and socialism, I totally don't believe in it anymore, but occasionally I'll hear something the Tory says and I'll sort of bristle a little bit. Did you, when you were in the presence of George Bush, did any part of you sort of feel uncomfortable or, or did any of the anger at any point? Just rise a little. I'll tell you when it did. Not with Bush. It did when I met the guy that killed Bin Laden. Really? Yeah. You... Yeah. So I was in LA. I was in California. And the reason it did is because I thought, 10 years ago, you would have killed me too. Mm. And I don't believe... I believe if we can... Look, I, I stand for the rule of law. I stand for human rights. And because of the rule of law and human rights, I despise Islamism. Because the Islamists will break the rule of law and they will break your human rights. But for the same reason, I cannot be a hypocrite and justify the violation of human rights and the rule of law to defeat Islamism, which is why I oppose rendition to torture and all the other things, stop and search, and all the stuff that was brought in that the Liberal Democrats are trying to reverse <laughs> um, um, that during the war on terror years. Now, what happens? So I, don't, I think if we can arrest, if we can arrest Saddam Hussein um, and try him for all, whatever happened in that trial, you know, the Iraqis, you know, whether they made a botched, I don't believe in a death sentence, they killed him, but essentially he was subject to Iraqi rule of law. Yeah. If he can arrest Saddam Hussein, I do not see why we couldn't have arrested bin Laden. I don't think that it's our way to execute people and assassinate people. 
when we had him in his in, house. Do you think they went in with the intention of killing him? Yeah, no, 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 I know they did. No, I know that. I spoke to the guys. They did. Yeah, there was no chance they were going to kill him. That, that was it. How did you meet the guy? Um, I know people. I know people. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, so I'm in California. He came and, you know, I was a bit nervous because I thought yeah. you, would, you would have killed me 10 years ago. And, you know, I, I shook his hand. I sat down. And then I realized something that I was, I, and that's when the, you know, the anger began yeah. to sort of, but I thought I, I unfairly judged this guy because he was a soldier. Mm. It, what, he was following orders. He didn't invent that order. He's a, he's a SEAL. He was the best of the best. He's going to follow the orders to the T. It's whoever gave him that order to shoot, to kill. My, my problem, and it wasn't during an Obama administration. It's, yeah. it's not just, you know, the neoconservatives I'm critical of. Obama launched more drone strikes than Bush ever did and was the one that gave the shoot, to kill orders to those SEALs that killed bin Laden. And I just think that, they're, they're changing now. They've realized that you can't, as, as, as a um, as, uh, SOCOM's deputy, the Admiral McRaven's deputy at SOCOM said to me about two months ago, he said, we've realized that we cannot shoot our way out of this problem, which is what Quilliam's been arguing for six years, that the way to deal with this is the way we dealt with racism, the way we dealt with homophobia. We need to sap the demand on the grassroots among young angry Muslims for this ideology by completely totally discrediting it. It needs to be as unappealing and as unattractive as Soviet communism has become today. And the way to do that is through the creative industries. It is through music and arts and comedy and, and through political activism. It is through branding, like the way that you know, we branded homophobes as bad people. It's through these sorts of civil society campaigns. If we went around shooting homophobes to death, we wouldn't be where we are today where a conservative prime minister legalised gay marriage. But that's, a long, that's, a, that's the long-term solution. Yeah. In the short term, so when you know, America's uh, the victim of a terrorist attack, in the immediate aftermath... Is it not a mixture of both? Yeah, soft no, no, powers and soft power? No, there's always a place for law and war. Both are used, but they must be used legally. And there's a difference between using them within the constraints of law and then being ultra-virus, being against the law. So what I, you know, there is never a place for torture in my book. There is never a place for taking British citizens to a third country to subject them to torture, to get a confession out of them, and then bring them back. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, what that does is it fuels a sort of narrative I spoke about at the beginning. The half-truths, you remember the half-truths? Yeah. So when I was that young, angry 15-year-old seeing the genocide in Bosnia and seeing uh, the Britain's government, I think it was a conservative government at the time, uh, unifying around the whole idea there was an arms embargo so the Bosnians couldn't defend themselves. Um, and a recruiter came to me and basically spun this narrative with facts on the ground that the recruiter could point to so that I, in my young and naive 15-year-old self, couldn't disprove the facts he was pointing to. Look, there's a genocide of Muslims in Bosnia. Oh, yeah, there is. So if today those recruiters, the 500 who've gone to Syria to fight and join a group more extreme than al-Qaeda, are being pointed to, the things are being pointed at, look, there's a, you know, they tortured that person there, yet they believe in democracy. They invaded that country there. These are half-truths that they can point at, and the only thing it achieves is that symbiotic relationship I was talking about. It, it aids that recruitment narrative. We've got to maintain... If we are going to preach uh, what I say liberalism's job is to liberalise, if we're going to do that, then we've got to maintain a bare minimum standard of human rights so that we can genuinely reach out to people like the Tommy Robinsons and the Islamists that we've brought out of those organisations because they believe our voice is credible. So during your time with Hizbut Tahrir, did you ever have any contact with people that went on to be or at the time were members of Al-Qaeda? Yeah. I was in prison with them in Egypt. And what would, obviously they believed in jihad, and I think that's the distinction is that you didn't yeah. believe in jihad. Yeah. Is that the only distinction between the two groups? So Hizb Tahrir's method of coming to power was via military coups, not via violence. The difference between Islamism as jihad and jihadism is if, if as I've said, if Islamism is the, is the desire to impose 
any given interpretation of religion over society, jihadism is the use of force to spread Islamism. Now, Hizb al-Tahrir, the group I used to belong to, we didn't believe in killing people to bring about Islamism. We believed in recruiting army officers and then instigating a military coup. So when I went to Pakistan, that's what I did. I recruited Pakistani army officers um, and we attempted a coup. It, it didn't work. <laughs> there, so, I mean, there, you're lucky to be alive, really. Yeah, I am. Is, is it purely the fact that you're a British national, do you think, that's, that saved your life? No, because the person that was tortured in front of me in Egypt was a British national. So when you were in, in the Egyptian jail, I mean, the, the story is harrowing of being in the a face down in a van, blindfolded, the smell of sweat and urine, you don't know what day it is, you're then in this room where you can hear the crack of electricity and people are getting tortured one by one, the things you can overhear the guards saying to some of the other prisoners. You weren't physically tortured, but to be kept in those conditions itself could justifiably be described as torture. But, yeah, the, the technical definition is it was torture, but, but what people commonly understand, that's why I make a point in the book, because I don't want to claim something or give an impression to something that didn't happen. British citizen, a British citizen was electrocuted in front of me. The technical definition of torture covers what happened to me because there's psychological torture, you know, there's solitary confinement, there's beatings. But if we talk about what we commonly understand in terms of having you know, nails pulled out, electrocution, being hanged from, sort of from doors and stuff, that happened to people that were with me in the cells. Uh, people died from their wounds in front of me in prison. So you were, and I think I've remembered this correctly, you're, you're all in a room, almost in a human pyramid, blindfolded, one on top yeah. of the other. You're all given a number that you have to remember. Yeah. You're kept, you, you think, it's probably for about three days. Each number's called out. Four days. Four days. Each number's called out, and each person in turn is then, you hear the crack of electricity, they're then brought back in, and they sort of slump in the corner, and your number was 42. Yeah. When you heard your number called out, we, at that point, did your body try to resist, or were you just so exhausted that you just think, oh, I'm going to just have to take whatever comes here? That was the longest walk of my life. Um, I, I still don't know how my legs carried me to the torturer um, uh, interrogation cell, because at the time, I didn't know they weren't going to electrocute me. They'd electrocuted 41 people before me, including, as I said, a British citizen. So there was no reason for me to believe they wouldn't electrocute me. Um, I don't know how my legs carried me to the interrogation uh, cell. I had to walk there, guided by the guard, blindfolded, so I couldn't see. Um, and then something else happened that I still don't know how I managed to do until this day. Because um, they ran out of handcuffs. They handcuffed so many people. There were hundreds of us in this underground facility. So my hands were tied behind my back with rags. And the rags came loose, so my hands were free. Now, I... I've always been the type of person that would rather die than suffer humiliation. It's just, I just, I, there's something inside me that just tells me there's no way I'm going to let myself go through that. So when my hands were free, I, I, I genuinely and uh, you know, sincerely promised myself that if this guy tries to electrocute me, and this sounds really mad, but then that's what happens in places like that. You go mad. Um, I said to myself, I, you know, I, I'm outnumbered. They've got guns. They've got torture instruments. There's no way I can win. I will jump on this guy, and I will just sink my teeth into his throat until they kill me. And that's what I was ready to do. My hands were free. And it was, he basically warned me and he said, you, you know, you know we can do this to British citizens. We've just done it to someone in front of you. Answer our questions. And they wanted the names of all the other Hezbollah members in Egypt. And what I don't know how I managed to, I, I don't know how I managed to pull this off, was I said to him, and I'm, you know, I'm forever proud of this. Um, there's many things in my life I've not, I'm not proud of. And this part I am very happy to boast about. Um, I said to him, I've got nothing more to say to you. You can do what you want. And, and a miracle happened. He didn't torture me. He, he didn't touch me. He said, go back to your floor in the corridor. 
I'm going to give you another 12 hours to think about the seriousness of what you've just said to me. Within those 12 hours, the British embassy made contact. And that's why I wasn't tortured, that within those 12 hours, they made contact. They're meant to have made contact within 48 hours. But this is now we're in day four. But within that 12-hour amnesty that the guy gave me, they did manage to make contact. We were pulled from the torture dungeons and put into solitary confinement for four months. And that's what saved me. In terms of the sort of environment that you're kept in, did you take your blindfold off at all? Could you see? No. Um, was it if underground? You, if, look, it, it, you, you can't take, you, you're not allowed to take the blindfold off. If you, if you did, then you, you know, you'd be in for serious trouble. People were, people were tortured for far less than that. For just basically, for example, when they're put in stress positions, they were tortured for not being able to stand up in the stress position for the period of time that they were told to stand there for. There's no way you're going to take your blindfold off and risk that. People were raped there in that, in that dungeon. When you saw um, the Mubarak regime overthrown, was there part of you in the immediate sense that thought, I hope they get the bastards that did that to me? So I saw two things that happened. I saw Gaddafi overthrown in Libya. I was involved in both. Uh, how I mean, what I mean by involved is during the uprisings in Libya and in Egypt, I was uh, quite literally, and these, these clips are on YouTube, I was inciting the Egyptian population to rise up against Mubarak through Sky News and Al Jazeera and all the media outlets. We were doing lots of interviews at the time. And our involvement in Libya was a lot more direct because the president of Quilliam, uh, one of my sort of you know, most trusted uh, sort of right-hand men, is a Libyan and has a former jihadist background and therefore had all these networks in Libya. So we were involved in both. And I saw Gaddafi mobbed in the streets, sodomized and murdered. And I saw Mubarak arrested. With your own eyes, you saw No, no, no. I mean, saying on the screens, yeah? yeah? And I felt far happier with Mubarak being arrested than watching what happened to Gaddafi. Because what I stand for, what I represent, is, as I said, the rule of law and due process. And that's what happened to Mubarak. He was arrested in a civilized manner, and he was put on trial. I saw him held behind <coughs> the very same cage he held me in, in yeah. the courts, because they put you in cages, wearing the, f- the same white overalls he put me in. And then, ironically... He got a bed, though. He got a bed in the hospital in my prison, yeah. Um, but this was a cathartic moment because he was sentenced and held in the prison he held me in, along with the interior minister who convicted us. And then the prime minister invited me to Chequers here in Britain um, with the spokesman for the new government in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood-controlled government that I didn't agree with and that yeah. I was a vocal critic of. Um, but nevertheless, I'm there at Chequers briefing the foreign secretary, the prime minister, the head of MI6 and the spokesman for the Egyptian government about what Britain's foreign policy should be towards <coughs> Egypt, towards Egypt, while Mubarak is sitting in the very same prison he held me in. That, for me, was justice. That, for me, was a cathartic moment. I didn't want to see him tortured and beaten. What happened to, to, to Gaddafi is, in part, kind of, you, know, you can see why Libya now is descending into civil war, mm. whereas Egypt is about to have an election. I, ju- I mean, that takes incredible grace on your part not to feel any sort of you know, to, in, uh, ultimately to get all your vengeance through democracy not to have any sort of bloodlust for the people that subjected you to the most awful experience of your life I think that's the healthiest way to approach it I don't think I'd be sitting here in front of you now if I felt any other way I'd probably be in prison having committed lots and lots of acts of violence through post-traumatic stress disorder when you're in that prison uh, when you're taken into solitary after and you're then well, you're in solitary, but you're also mixing with other uh, prisoners. Is that, was that the start, do you think, of your turning point? Yeah. Has anyone read George Orwell's Animal Farm? Yeah. Right, so read it again. It's an amazing book, and I think that, that it really... 
I read it sort of about three times, I reread it about three times in prison. Um, and I, so I lived with the people that I had lionized. In 1981, recruits of Hizb Tahrir in Egypt went on to form a group known as Tanzim al-Jihad, or the Jihad Organization. That group, and they were recruits of my former organization, went on to assassinate the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, right? Um, those guys, mo- the most of them were executed for the assassination of the president. Some of them, the junior ones in the case, got given life sentences. I was in prison with two of those people that were responsible for the assassination of the president of Egypt in 1981. I had grown up through the Islamist cause lionizing these men as champions of this ideology. And I found myself in prison with them and with all sorts of other jihadists from the entire spectrum of Egypt's political sort of thinking. And that's why I refer to Animal Farm, because when you live with them close up on a day-in, day-out basis every single day for four years, four and a half years, whatever it was, you see you know, the ideology you know, in practice. And that's what happened. And so I continued my studies. Um, I began debating and discussing with secular political prisoners, with uh, Islamists, with jihadists, with socialists, and it was a, a real form of political university for me. By the end of those four years, I began realizing through that lived experience that this whole ideology was a lie. It was a manipulation of the 1,400-year-old religion of Islam. Now, I'm not a devout Muslim. I never was. For me, this was a political revolution with religious connotations. It wasn't a religious revolution with political connotations. Um, and I've gone back to how my mother raised me, which was socially liberal, you know, politically liberal. But I realized, despite you know, me not being devout, I realized they were abusing uh, uh, the interpretation of a traditional faith for political objectives. Um, and I realized that I was an instrument of that abuse. So when I left prison in, in 2008, I was still on the leadership of Hizb Tahrir. I gave it about 10 months to test my new ideas with the leadership in this country, but it was untenable. So then I unilaterally resigned um, my membership and denounced the Islamist ideology on, on Newsnight with, uh, with Paxman. Um, I'd like to take some questions from the audience now. So uh, have the lights up a little bit. If you've got a question, please put your hand in the air. I'll have to repeat it for the benefit of the uh, podcast, mm-hmm. which I know can be a little bit tedious, but it just means that when people download it, they, they can hear the questions that have been asked. So uh, any questions, please? Yes, the gentleman at the front. What's your name? Tim Lovell. Tim Lovell. Tim, Hi, Tim. what's your question? Why are you a liberal Democrat? I'm surprised you didn't. That's what you got from an hour's yeah. worth. <laughs> Why are you a liberal Democrat? Good question. That is a good question. I'm really happy you asked that, actually. Uh, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is I'm not a socialist and I'm not a conservative. So I'm a liberal. I think that the liberal Democrats leave a lot to be desired for, but it's the best vehicle to express my liberalism, and <coughs> specifically... Uh, what I call the, the assertive form of liberalism is in liberalism's mission is to liberalize. Um, there are the orange bookers within the Liberal Democrats who firmly believe in this understanding of liberalism's mission being to liberalize. Um, when I joined in 2009, it was before the election. It was before anyone had any understanding of whether the Liberal Democrats would be in coalition. I'd never seen a liberal government for my entire life. But I lived my life according to the beliefs that I you know, genuinely believe in. So I joined what I found was a party that best represents my liberalism. I believe in reform within the European Union, not without it. Um, I believe in an elected second chamber. I believe in disestablishment. I don't believe any religion should be privileged over over any other religion. Uh, People must have the freedom to practice their religion, but not to impose it. Um, I believe um, in electoral reform, and all of these are 
liberal democrat policies. So I felt comfortable um, in joining that party, never thinking it would mean anything beyond membership, because as I said, it was 2009. And then Clegmania happened and uh, reversed <laughs> itself. And it sounds funny to talk about <laughs> Clegmania now, doesn't it? Because right, yeah. Uh, yeah, that one day of Clegmania, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where people thought he was less of a twat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where's Nick Clegg obviously is getting a lot of stick at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Lord Oakshot uh, has resigned from the party. There are people coalescing around Tim Farron and Vince Cable. Um, do you think Nick Clegg should lead the party at the next election? No, no, I, I don't think... I think the problem is deeper than that. And I've written a piece which I hope the Financial Times will publish the day after tomorrow. We're waiting for feedback on whether they will, but I'll certainly f- make sure it's published somewhere. And I've, I've, dis- I've sort of tried to advise that the, the, the problem is beyond the party leader. There is a problem. Liberalism is suffering at the moment because of something else that's happening. And I said that the global tectonic plates are shifting in terms of politics. Um, global equality is on the rise, meaning between countries, countries are becoming more equal. Now, there's India, China, America. They are balancing each other out in terms of wealth. So between countries, equality is on the rise. But within countries, inequality is on the rise. And the reason for that is because we're no longer comp- I'm no longer competing with you and him. I'm now also competing with the global pool of talent that's coming to this country for the jobs that are, limited amount of jobs that are on, on, on display. And that's how, because we liberalise the economy, that's what happens, it's competition. So inequality domestically is on the rise. What that leads to is the people that Britain left behind, and we did leave them behind, we need to take responsibility for that, are you know, those working class people that feel that they have been ignored, that their interests haven't been looked after, and they are, as a result, resorting to xenophobic parties who claim to stand up for them. Of course, those parties I don't believe... I, I believe they're vacuous. I don't believe they have a solution. But currently, it seems like they do, so they're going to, to those parties. And that's, the, that's how deep the problem is. It's not just about a party leader. So liberalism needs to respond to that specific challenge because it caused that problem. Yeah, but there's, there's the specific political problem that the Lib Dems face. Currently, yeah. Which is, yeah. obviously, as a result of being in coalition, which I think they had to do. Yeah, there was no option. Um, there was another option yeah. but to go into it. But obviously, Nick Clegg, you know, the perception is that he promised things, he broke his promises. There's a clamour within the Lib Dems they fear after these European election results they're only left with one MEP now yeah. that they're going to get wiped out of the next general election um, I think we should be working to 2018 <laughs> that's, that's all we can do you can't a year before an election change your leader change the coalition agreements it, it, people accuse the Lib Dems of being wobbly I think there's a lot more you know, assertive liberalism that needs to be done but if you, if you change the leader at this stage, you're going to pander to that sort of accusation that the Lib Dems can't, they don't have a spine. They can't stand up to anything. Mm. So you can't have the best of both worlds. On the one hand, Lib Dems are wobbly in the knees, don't really stand for anything. <laughs> and on the other hand, oh, look, we want Nick Clegg to resign to prove they're wobbly yeah. in the knees and don't really stand for anything. So let him stand for what he believes until 2015. The electorate will judge, and it will. I've still got Quilliam going on. My gig's going to happen anyway. <laughs> right? and, then, you know, <laughs> and then in 2018, you know, you'll see what happens because these electoral tides come and go. Okay, uh, the gentleman at the top, what's your name, sir? Martin. Martin, what's your question, please? Do you think you have been radicalised? Do you think, had you not been radicalised, you'd have been radical the other way? What, what do you so mean by the other way? What's the other way? Oh, I see. I kind of like to be a Formula One racing driver, to be honest. Um, I am who I am because I've been radicalised, if that's the question you're asking. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why when people ask, do I regret anything I've done? There's lots of things I regret, um, but I'm the culmination of my life experiences. So I can't really say I wish it any other way because as a result of that, I have a lovely fiancé who's sitting right here. Her name's Rachel. Um, 
who I met in New York, and you know, I've got great friendships. Uh, Kosh is here, and he's you know, a former Hizbut Tahrir member as well. He's the resident writer at the Theatre Royale in Stratford, Battle of Green Lanes. You know, th- these are the friendships I formed because of who I am now. We all met through my work. Um, No, absolutely, I agree with you. I suppose it depends what the yes. positive is, though, doesn't it? I mean, you know, until a few weeks ago, Tommy Robinson had a lot of mates, yeah. uh, but the negative was they were very violent. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> so you have to be sort of, yeah. <laughs> to be a sense of perspective at some point. Yeah. Yes, mate, what's your question? Uh, local politics again. What do you make of the issues coming out of Tower Hamlets? What do you make of the issues coming out of Tower Hamlets? Great question. Yeah. Someone loved it. Where do I... <laughs> So, so this for is the, for those who aren't following. Yeah, for those who aren't following. Ta- so uh, there was a the leader of the council in Tower Hamlets was uh, the Labour Party's uh, leader of the council was a man named Lutfur Rahman, who had formed alliances a bit like George Galloway with certain extreme elements um, and Islamist groups in this country. Um, Labour decided that this was entryism, as the militant strand had attempted before. So they ejected him, rightly so, from the Labour Party. Um, Lutfer decided with his supporters to uh, not stand, take that easily, uh, decided to instead bring in a directly elected mayoral position within Tower Hamlets and duly won that position and was elected to be mayor of Tower Hamlets. Uh, and the La- Labour Party are now in opposition. Uh, they would have held that seat. Ken Livingstone, interestingly, supported Lutfer against his own party, which is interesting. Um, the first time that's happened, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, I think you can probably tell by my tone and the way I'm going with this. I'm not very happy with that. <laughs> um, you know, Quilliam's mission statement is to challenge Islamist extremism and the entryism that it attempts to bring about. And the, an organisation in Tower Hamlets called the Islamic Forum Europe, which is a Jamaat-Islami front, Jamaat-Islami is South Asia's version of the Muslim Brotherhood, believes in entryism. It's, it's, and this is a success of its policy. It's, it's a work within, whereas our group, Hizbut Tahrir, believed in revolution, fire military coups, and Al-Qaeda believes in, you know, armed insurrection, the Muslim Brotherhood model is entryism. So what's happening in Tower Hamlets and what's happening, and it is happening, in the Birmingham schools with the takeover of the the school's board of of governors, the letter wasn't real, but the problem certainly is real. We know that. We're in touch with the teachers. We're in touch with the communities. There is a problem in Birmingham with entryism in the schools. These are methodologies that we as Islamists used to debate with Muslim Brotherhood-inclined groups because we would argue for military coups. They would argue for entryism. We know this is a very real situation. However, our solution to that must be within... Uh, the bounds, as I said, of the rule of law. But, but in terms of uh, look for Rahman as, a, as an individual, as a politician, um, he's obviously been uh, he's suffered a lot of allegations. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, do you think the things that are said about him are true? I mean, so, these are criminal allegations, and this is going to be podcast. So yeah. I think the best thing to say is that there's a, there's there's, a, there's certainly a, uh, you know there's certainly a lot to be worried about. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. A question over there. What's your name, sir? That's a fantastic so, yeah, question. What, what role does faith play in your life? That's now? a fantastic question. I, you know, my identity and my heritage is my faith, and I don't want to shed that. I, you know, I go home and I meet my father, and it matters so much to him and, and to my, you know, my extended family. And it's, it is part of my... But I believe identity is multiple. So it's not my only uh, key and sole identity, which is what Islamists would have it be. But it's part of my multiple identity. I speak fluent Arabic. I, in prison, I'd memorized half of the Qur'an. So it's, it's, it's part of my, you know, who I am and what 
informs me today when I meet with Islamists, some of the counter-arguments I put forward are in an attempt to demonstrate their own shallowness within their understanding of theology. Now, I say I'm not devout because, you know, I'm a humanist. I'm a liberal, secular humanist. But I don't want to disavow my heritage. Um, at Quilliam, we do have devout theologians, namely Dr. Osama Hassan, as an example, who, unlike me, has mem memorized the entire Quran off by heart. Um, and, you know, these people are working to uh, devise a reformed theology within a Muslim context, and we promote and publish that material. So my relationship with faith today um, is with the reformed theology side of it for Muslims, and it's to act as a vehicle and an instrument to make those arguments heard. And that's how I see my role. Sort of, um, sort of Blairite role. Yeah. <laughs> as I said, as I said, if Blair stopped in Northern Ireland, I'd be a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, it's unfair I am. He's a very, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a, an intelligent and smart man who says a lot of things that are right. You know, some things I don't agree, but a to be fair to him, a lot of things he does say that, that they are correct. And I agree with your critique that sometimes we just dismiss it because the man's saying it. And I get a lot of that, so I sympathise when that happens to someone else. Uh, and he's good looking. Uh, yes, what's the, um, yes, madam, what was your question, please? Have the uh, Lib Dems lost a generation of voters yeah. due to the U-turn on Absolutely. Cities? And I, I, I think what I argued in this piece, which I'm hoping gets published, is that we... Um, I'm going to say... I'm going to tell you the whole piece now because it's important. It means that much to me. I, look, look, look. You see this thing here, right? I can, I can, I can Skype someone. I can Skype my mother-in-law to be in, in, in Tennessee in America on this little thing here, right? Or Let's do it now! Going to get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or, or, you know, FaceTime. I can transfer thousands of pounds from this, from my bank to someone else's bank. That's when you should have said, let's do it oh, now. Oh, shit. Right? Um, <laughs> you know, I can, I, 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 can, I can incite revolutions via Twitter from this, which has happened in the real world. You're wondering where I'm going with this, aren't you? Right? What I can't do is vote from this. So I think we are so out of touch politically with the world of finance, with the world of sort of, you know, social media. Um, we can't, we can do everything but vote on this. I can order my weekly shopping on this, but we can't vote on this. Um, and it's one of the policies I recommend in terms of e-voting. Estonia does it. Uh, the Electoral Commission in Britain has urgently recommended we do it, but of course it's not in the vested interest for it to happen. Um, the other things I've talked about is an elected second chamber because people feel disempowered. They don't feel like they have a voice, that no one listens to them. Um, uh, decriminalisation of, of drugs, reform of the drugs policy. It's a health problem. It's not a criminal problem. Someone's addicted to drugs. They're not a criminal. They have a health issue. Take them to a council or to a hospital and have them treated. Don't put them into prison. You know, these, and these are young people. So I'm saying all these things because it affects young people. Yes, we've lost that generation of young people. In Britain, 38%, 38% is the gap between older voters and younger voters. It's the highest in any democracy in the world. Why do I care so much about this? Because I was one of those disenfranchised young people that went onto the margins and the fringes because I didn't believe in democracy. But in terms of the specific impacts of tuition fees, you can't really say, but I know you're paying nine grand a term, but have you seen this new app? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm saying 2018. That's it. Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, it's, you it's say, well, I can't afford a phone, mate. I'm spending all my money on bloody tuition fees. I'm going to take a loan out as well. Yeah, it's, it's better than saying I invaded a country, but I still want you to vote for me anyway. Well, touche. Yeah. There we go. Right, <laughs> <laughs> I'll Don't you applaud it. Um, <laughs> right, it wasn't me. Yeah. Um, right, I'll take one more question. The chap at the back. What's the question, please? Do you have a problem if the 500 European jihadists were sent to Guantanamo? 
Yeah. Would you have a problem with 500 European jihadists were sent to Guantanamo? I think Guantanamo should be closed down. I think we should be able to try people under our own legislation that we have here, which is one of the most extensive forms of terrorism, the Terrorism Act, uh, one of the most extensive forms of terrorism law that, that, that exists. Uh, uh, the lopsided extradition treaty that we have with America, for example, um, under which uh, if America requests us to extradite people that are accused of terrorism, we are obliged to send them. And one of my former classmates in SOAS uh, was sent under, his name is uh, Talha, uh, Talha Asan. He was sent under this extradition treaty. But it's not reciprocal because the US Congress didn't ratify our version of it. So it's lopsided. So if we request Americans to send a terrorist to us, they don't have to. So what happens to the 500 European jihadists? Well, it's illegal already. That we've already just convicted someone a month ago in this country for fighting in Syria. It's illegal. We can try and, we can try and convict them in this country. Okay, well, that was the... Uh, oh, he just put his hand up. Very quick, one-sentence question and one-sentence answer, please. One of the things, though, is Bin Laden had not been killed. He had been returned to the state of society. He could have ended any way other than badly. Do you think if uh, Bin Laden had been uh, caught instead of killed, uh, he would have been put on trial in uh, America and it would have ended any other way than badly? So I do this for a living in terms of um, address and advise governments on terrorism and its consequences. It's already ended badly. Uh, we have a, a bigger problem now with terrorism than we had when Bin Laden was alive. After Bin Laden's death, Al-Qaeda were ruling cities. That's only something Bin Laden could have dreamed of. They were ruling Timbuktu, an area the size of France in North Mali. They were ruling towns and cities in Yemen. Uh, they had an insurrection going on in Somalia that took over half that country, and they were kidnapping, they have kidnapped their affiliates, 300 schoolgirls in Nigeria who they've enslaved and are probably raping as we speak. And, and that's the, the way that this ideology has spread post the death of bin Laden, let alone Syria with 500 more than ever went to Afghanistan. 500 British citizens are going to fight in Syria. And we've all heard of Afghan blowback. Yet let's wait for the Syria blowback. Things have already gone bad. Well, um, I wanted to end on a light note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, uh, I think we're going to have to leave it there. This has been uh, one of the most, I have to say, uh, Majid, uh, emotional uh, nights we've had here. And... Uh, just the, um, you know, the force with which you speak and the experiences you, you've had and the way you articulate them is, is phenomenal and uh, incredible. The amount of sort of education we've had tonight has been amazing. So thank you. Um, thank you. <coughs> so, uh, that brings us to the end of uh, tonight's show. Uh, next month, um, which will be the last show before the Edinburgh Festival, so we'll, we'll have, I'll be up in Edinburgh for two months off before we come back uh, in September. Uh, my next guest is Sir Alan Hazelhurst, who's a Conservative veteran MP, uh, long-time Deputy Speaker of the House uh, under Boothroyd, under Martin, and then again under Burko. will give us uh, a fascinating insight into, uh, well, being a sort of, you know, a, a long-serving Conservative MP and seeing, I think when he was first elected under Wilson, uh, so I've seen a, a heck of a lot of change in Parliament and in British society. Um, please, uh, before we go, thank all the bar staff and Pav on sound tonight and everyone at the St James's Theatre who's made tonight possible. Uh, do check uh, the website, St James's Theatre. We'll be announcing guests uh, for the autumn when I can confirm that in October we'll be joined by Michael Portillo. Um, and we continue to work on the, the very best guests in British politics. But please, oh, and one more thing. The book, uh, Radical, is, is on sale tonight. Imagine it's going to sign them. It's eight ninety nine. I read it in a week. It's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. I can't recommend Thank it you. more highly, Thank uh, even if Tony Blair's not allowed to. So, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive reception for Imagine Nawaz.
There you go, Majid Nawaz. What an impressive man. Some great questions from the audience as well that evening. The um, next show available online will be the show with Sir Alan Hazelhurst that I recorded last month. Uh, that'll be available soon. I'll get that uh, edited and put up as soon as possible. I'm going to be in Edinburgh for the whole of August with uh, my show, 24-Hour Party People, at half two in the Pleasant Cabaret Bar in the courtyards. If you're at the Edinburgh Festival, do come and see me. Tickets are available on the website edfringe.com. The political party starts again in September on the 24th. I'll be announcing the guest for that soon. Um, already uh, confirmed for the autumn-winter season is Michael Portillo on the 29th of October and rising Labour star Luciana Berger on the 26th of November. I'm starting a new show as well. That will also be podcasting. Uh, the Sports Party, that starts on the 11th of September and uh, will also take place on the 16th of October and the 20th of November. And I can't quite confirm the first guest yet, but it's very exciting. Um, and it'll be a, it'll be the similar format to the political show, but with sports stars. So talking to boxers and footballers, officials, people involved in huge sporting moments uh, that I find absolutely fascinating. So do come down to one of those. They're all available uh, on the St. James Theatre website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. I hope you're having a good summer, and um, if you are in Edinburgh, say hello. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share it uh, and spread the word. Um, that really is all. I shall uh, get the Sir Alan Hazelhurst one edited, and I'll get it up as soon as possible. All right. I always, I know I say this, always feels like... I think it's because I record this bit on my phone. Um, so then I always feel like I'm saying, all right, see you soon, bye, do you want anything from the shops? If you do, um, tweet me, and if I, you know... I mean, I'm, that's a promise I cannot deliver. I was going to say, and if I live nearby, maybe I'll pop in and deliver it to you. Pointless promises to be making. Uh, a lesson, a solitary lesson in uh, under-promising and over-delivering. So maybe I will pop round. I won't. Don't worry about it. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.